It is an honor to uh, get to speak this year. This is, uh, we're not going to make this a habit. Uh, it's, it's really a joy to bring in outside speakers every year to introduce um, our congregation to friends that I love and trust and, and love you hearing from. It's good to hear a different voice, but because of, you've heard me talk about this already, but because of the nature of the uh, topic this year, our leadership decided that we should do this one in-house and uh, give me the pleasure of talking sex and gender. So, um, let, me, let me welcome us to our conference by explaining what our conference is not. Uh, this will not be a conference defending the historical Christian sexual ethic. I hold to that ethic, but I'm not here to, in essence, defend it. And here's why that's important for me to say up front. The topic of human sexuality and gender has risen to become the issue of all issues in our society. And because of this, I think we sense both an internal and external pressure to defend our beliefs. Internally, as uh, Christians seek to navigate the rapid destabilization of our ethical order, the natural temptation is to defend, defend, defend what we believe, perhaps not to persuade, that might be a lost cause, but more so to just prove that we're not crazy or bigoted. And accompanying this internal pressure is also an external demand. The tenets of secular sexuality have become the boundary marker of sexual or secular orthodoxy, uh, such that a defense is, in a sense, demanded of us who don't fall within that orthodoxy, less as a conversation and more as an inquisition. Our society also says to us, defend, defend, defend what you believe, for to the watching world, these historical beliefs are indefensible. So I understand that we do feel the need to defend, and our culture in some ways is demanding a defense, and this conference will not satisfy either of those. So if that's what you were hoping from this conference, if you were hoping that I would come and just pick up all of the hot topic issues and dissect those for you and give you an apologetic and send you out to be well-equipped arguers for Jesus. That's not what this is. We will hit on those issues within the context of where I'm going, but that's not the point. So then what is this? What are we here for? I'm here to tell you a love story, but not just any love story, an erotic love story, an erotic story that uh, though se severely neglected by the Christian church, happens to be the very story of the Christian church. The English language vainly attempts to use one word to describe what cannot possibly be contained by one word. The Greek language, the original language of the New Testament, has four words to describe love. The most well-known in Christianity is agape. You've probably heard that before. Divine love, perhaps a more understandable way to describe it would be religious love, that love that belongs to the religious life. God's love for us and response, our love for God, this is the highest love to which all other forms of love point. For example, another one is storge love. This is affectionate love. 
This is the type of love that we experience in our enjoyment, our delight in something. We say things like, I love that movie. And this storge love points to our ultimate enjoyment and adoration that we find in agape love. So God takes delight in us, we find our ultimate delight in him. So a good movie, rightfully understood, leads us to God. Then there's filio love, friendship love, the love that we experience within community. I tell Will, I tell Stephen, I tell many brothers and some sisters, I tell these friends all the time that I love them, because I do. And this filio love points to the ultimate friendship that we find in agape love. Communion with God, fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. Our friendships, rightly understood, lead us to God. And then there's one more. Eros, erotic love. The most sacred love reserved for the most sacred act. A love so powerful that God withholds it from us until our bodies are developed enough to house it. Children enjoy Storge and filio love, but children cannot handle eros. A love so powerful it can decimate our souls with pain and anger and righteous jealousy. Abby's storge love for art museums, I celebrate. I celebrate Abby's filia love for her friends, but if she had eros for another, I would come undone. What are we to make of the erotic? This love that leads us where no other love can take us, into heights of ecstasies and depths of intimacy, and most remarkable of all, a love so singular in its power that it can actually create new life. What are we to do with Eros? And more importantly, what has Eros to do with God? Storge leads us to God. Philio leads us to God. What does Eros have to do with God? Well, the answer is everything. More than any other love we experience, we discover God in the erotic. And that is the love story I wish to tell at this conference. I believe it is a story so transcendent in its glory that if properly proclaimed and practiced and embodied, every competing story of love in our culture collapses in its presence. When my son was about to enter into his teenage years, I began researching uh, Christian books and curriculums that would help me with the the talk. Uh, Not the birds and bees, for that a biology text would suffice. What I was seeking was not the biology of human sexuality, but the theology of human sexuality. And it didn't take long for my research to turn into a very uh, frustrating exercise. I turned to the uh, go-to evangelical uh, resources, and what I found was fear-based, guilt-driven, sex-suppressing, purity culture teaching. And I wanted more for my sons. And so I turned to um, Christian scholarship outside of our evangelical tradition, and it was there that I discovered exactly what I was looking for. Between uh, 1979 and 1984, Pope John Paul II delivered 139 lectures that would become his magnum opus entitled Theology of the Body. John Paul foresaw the distortion and disarray of sexuality that was emerging 
in the late 70s and early 80s, and with prophetic foresight, he offered a Christian critique. Now, I'm clearly Protestant and a big fan of the Reformation, and there is obviously much that I disagree with his teachings, but the central tenets of his teaching on sexuality and gender are, to me, the most important scholarship the church has produced on this vitally important issue of our day. And so through John Paul's writings, along with the massively helpful commentary of a guy by the name of Christopher West, who I also want to give credit to, don't give John Paul a try without Christopher West, I discovered a theology of sexuality that I think our tradition is desperate to discover, and that is what I'm going to deliver to you over the next few days. The theology is constructed around the significance of eros, and John Paul's scholarship unveils the erotic, uh, essentially through the familiar creation, fall, redemption pattern that you may be familiar with with Scripture. He, he doesn't word it that way, but that's essentially what his teaching does. And I'm going to frame my three talks that way. I'm calling it Revelation of Eros, Redirection of Eros, and then Resurrection of Eros. So tonight, Revelation Friday night, redirection, Saturday morning, resurrection. Tonight it begins with the glorious vision itself, the revelation of Eros. A seminal passage in Theology of the Body is when Jesus was questioned about the issue of divorce. Let me read that passage for us from Matthew 9. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you, read, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. All right, but before I get to the main point that John Paul makes with this passage, let me use the topic of this passage, the subject of that passage, to offer a preemptive pastoral word to the divorced among us. A consequence of the uh, sexual revolution that doesn't receive its due lament is the proliferation of divorce in our society. Obergefell was not the death of marriage in our culture. That death came earlier when divorce became a casual and convenient option, both outside and inside the church. But my concern is those among us for whom divorce was not convenient, but catastrophic. Chances are, if you are attending or listening to this conference um, and you are divorced, that probably means your divorce was a biblically lawful divorce because of adultery, because of abandonment, um, perhaps even because of abuse, you divorced your spouse in pain and sadness. My concern is that I, as I explore the glory of erotic love and marriage, the pain and shame of your divorce will only deepen. Here's what I want to say to you from the passage that I just read. Your divorce, though tragic, should be viewed as the mercy of God to you. Jesus says, because of the hardness of heart, Moses, obviously on behalf of God, allowed divorce. You see, marriage after the fall is a treacherous decision, isn't it? 
Every marriage experiences the pain of binding two sinners together unto death. But Jesus does recognize that in some cases of significant hardness of heart, the pain is too much to bear, and so he graciously gives you a lawful way to dissolve that covenant. So my hope and prayer for you at this conference that I just want to say at the beginning, as we discuss all this, you might be tempted to slump into shame over your divorce. You should instead lift up your head and thank Jesus for protecting you through your divorce. Now, back to the main point I want to make from the passage. Notice when challenged by the Pharisees about the practice of divorce, which is the result of the fall, Jesus redirects them before the fall. He says, have you not heard he who created them from the beginning made, made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then even after granting the mercy of a lawful divorce, Jesus still ends with this. But from the beginning, it was not so. That little phrase is central to John Paul's scholarship. Our first response to every form of sexual brokenness in our lives and in our world must always be, but from the beginning, it wasn't like that. But from the beginning, it was not so. The Christian says to every form of disordered lust, the pornographic images on your screen, the casual hookup culture on our campuses, the illicit affair all the way to the flirtatious text, indeed to the seemingly innocent, lustful glance and fantasy of the mind. To all of it, we Christians begin by saying, but from the beginning, it was not so. And yes, we respond to the movement that is upon us. We respond to every letter in LGBTQ plus with, but from the beginning, it was not so. Our theology does not start with the disorder of fallen sexuality, but with the beauty of God's created order. So let's go there, back to the beginning when it was so, and explore the revelation of Eros. The story of Eros actually begins before there is a beginning, originating in God himself. Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What a fascinating verse, the way it's worded. God, singular, said, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. The Trinity is there from the beginning, which means foundational to our understanding of creation is a Trinitarian creator. Now, there's a lot of disagreements I have with the Catholic teachings, but one thing that has never been questioned about the Catholic Church is their rich Trinitarian orthodoxy upon which Protestant tradition stands in that area. And one of the reasons why John Paul's scholarship on human sexuality and gender is so applicable to us as Protestants is because he grounds his entire theology in the Trinity. Now, I'm warning you uh, that some of what I'm about to say might sound irreverent or even blasphemous, but this is only because of what we have done to erotic love which is turned into something taboo or even impure. And then there are those who have suffered sexual trauma in this room, and sexuality is understandably now a source of great pain. Or those with sexual regrets in this room, and sexuality is understandably now a great source of shame. So I understand what I'm going to say will be a tough exercise. I know what I'm up against. 
But again, Jesus says, but from the beginning, it was not so. The challenge that I want to ask us to take up is to press through our uh, preconceptions and experiences as best we can and allow ourselves to behold Eros in its original design. The Trinity says, let us make man in our own image. On a most fundamental level, this means that we are icons of the divine. We are these special creatures who tell the story of God in unique ways. Unlike animals, we are moral creatures because God is moral. Unlike animals, we have a sense of justice because God is just. Unlike animals, we pursue truth, beauty, goodness because God is true, beautiful, and good. You get the point. Now, animals mate and procreate, but that's, there's more to it for image bearers. For example, why do we cover our genitals? We didn't in the beginning, more on that in a moment, but now we do. Why? My dog, Millie, just goes about the house and neighborhood flaunting it. <laughs> why not us? Because there's something sacred about our genitals and we know it. They are the physical instruments of erotic love. We weren't created to mate. We were created quite literally to make love. Nothing is more unique to image bearers than erotic love. Now I ask you, is that the one part of us that is not created in the image of God? Is human sexuality the most powerful, intimate, desirous, pleasurable, compelling part of the human existence exempt from God's image? Quite the opposite. The reason why sexuality holds unique prominence within every image bearer of God is because our sexuality is a window into the deepest mysteries of God. And I want to explore that mystery and show you what I mean. God is one God three persons, three distinct persons. That does not mean that God is divided up into three parts, like a pie chart with a father, son, and spirit, each a third, nor does God choose to be a father at some times, then son, and then spirit moving in and out of different modes. No, God is not split up into three parts, and God does not move in and out of three parts. God is at all times one in three. Does that make sense? No, it does not make sense. God is, by definition, incomprehensible. And yet, despite the admittedly inscrutable nature of the Trinity, only this Christian doctrine allows God to be complete and sufficient in himself. Here's what I mean. Because God is three in one, the creator is not dependent upon creation. When God says, let us create man, he did not say that out of need. The scriptures say God is love. He is love. He does not need love. He is himself the fountain of love. For example, consider storge love we spoke of earlier, the love of admiration. I love that movie. Well, it's not like God was previously bored and needed to create glory to enjoy it, needed to create a, a movie to watch, so to speak. He has forever reveled in admiration of his own glory. Consider philia love, love of friendship and community. God was not previously lonely and needed to create us to experience fellowship and community. He has forever existed in perfect communion with himself. Again, God is love. He does not need love. Well, does that love that he has forever enjoyed in himself 
include eros. Far more than including eros, the reason why God designed erotic love with unique significance in his image bears is because erotic love is the closest we come to grasping the God whose image we bear. John Paul describes the Trinity as an eternal exchange of love. Forever, God has been sharing and receiving love. And when I say love, I mean love. Love in its fullest and highest form, not some generic, boring, stoic, conceptual love. I mean ecstasy. I mean rapture. I mean an an eternal, intoxicating exchange of endless bliss. Again, this is tough for us, considering our preconceptions and experiences with sex. But we are made in God's image, not the other way around. So we don't sexualize the Trinity. Instead, the Trinity has given us sex as a glimpse into the Trinity. And the glimpse is this, an eternal exchange of forever sharing and receiving love's great ecstasy. We believe the scriptures to be the infallible revelation of God to us, right? How do you get to know God? You read your Bible. Well, why is Song of Solomon in your Bible? May I read to you some God-inspired passages from that book? Solomon says to his lover, How delightful is your love, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance, fragrance of your breath like apples in your mouth like the best wine. She says to Solomon, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyard. I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. My beloved thrusts his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. The word of the Lord. (laughs) We believe the scriptures reveal to us God. Well, God inspired in the canon of Holy Writ the description of lovers intoxicated on erotic love. Why? Because the erotic in us is a window into the eternal exchange of love in himself. So then why did God create us in the first place? Why, if he is intoxicated, perfectly satisfied, and triune love, did God create us to share in his love? God did not create us because he needs more love. God created us to share in his love because that's what love does. So how do we share in the love that God has forever enjoyed? Let's return to Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. So how did he craft his image? 
It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is something uniquely significant about male and female when it comes to the image of God. More specifically, it's the uniqueness of male and female, the uniqueness that they, that they, that, 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 where they are unfamiliar that unlocks the mystery of God's image. So let's turn to Genesis 2 and see God fashion this dissimilarity, the uniqueness of male and female. It starts with Adam. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So by fashioning Adam from the earth, God did nothing different from Adam that he did not do with every other living creature. And if this, if you're a biologist or scientist, you have noticed there absolutely is much we share in common with other living creatures. But what is not obvious to biological science, but is very obvious to arts and humanities, is what God does next. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The breath of God fills this newly formed animal, and the animal ceases to be an animal forevermore. He is now the image of God. Or is he? Because it would seem the image is not yet complete. Because God says, it is not good for man to be alone. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And what's so interesting about that is if if God wanted to make another image bearer, he could have just repeated the process, right? Just make Eve out of dirt and blow the life of his image into her. But that's not what he did. Eve is the only living creature, not from dust, but from another creature. I talked about this with the ladies yesterday, if you were there, that rightly understood, we would say that the glory of, the, the full apex of God's glory revealed in Scripture is the image of God. But nuancing that further, if you want to really define it, Eve comes out of the image, not dirt, so that she is the highest glory in all of creation, that the female body is the greatest beauty in all of creation. Men are gross. They look like they came from dirt. And every single culture has instinctively noticed the the innate glory and beauty of the female body. But this is what I want you to see. Eve is the only living creature, not from dust, but from another creature. And why is that significant? Remember, the Trinity is one in essence and three in persons. Well, Eve now is the same essence of Adam, but a distinct person. And notice the bodily influence in Adam's response. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He sees in her body, in her body, something of himself. Not just the biology of her body, but the theology of her body. The story of his body makes sense when he sees her body. And the story he discovered is in the differences of their bodies. He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And yes, her bones and flesh are exactly the same as his, except in one and only one area. They all have the exact same features, except in one place. 
There is only one area where Adam's body doesn't make sense by itself. There is only one area where Eve's body does not make sense by itself. Each body bears one part that is incomplete. But standing there, face to face, naked and without fallen shame, the glorious mystery of their bodies is unveiled. Adam essentially says, finally I make sense. Finally I get it. Because he discovers something that can only be discovered in the presence of Eve. Adam did not need Eve to understand his body in every area but one. His eyes made sense by themselves. His arms and legs, hands and feet, his whole body was complete in itself, in itself except for one and only one area. The male bodily system and the female bodily system depend upon each other in only one way and only properly function in union with the other's differences. I'm talking about genitals here if you're not following me. Even down to the cellular level. Every cell in your body has 46 chromosomes with one exception. The sperm cells have 23. The ovum has 23. Friends, in discussing genitals, we are on holy ground. We are entering into the very heart of the Trinity's eternal exchange of love. And in this way, the genitals tell a story that nothing else in all of creation has the capacity to tell. It is true that all of creation speaks of its creator in some way. The heavens declare the glory of God, the scriptures say. Indeed, this is true. Look up at a starry night and you will get a glimpse of God's glory. Look upon a majestic sunset and you will get a glimpse of God's beauty. Look at a raging storm and you will get a glimpse of God's power. But the vision of God's love, which is at the heart of the Trinity... The unveiling of the mystery of God's eternal exchange of triune love. This he has entrusted to his image bearers as male and female. The genitals, the complementary instruments of erotic love, are the nearest we get to the heart of the divine trinity. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, but the genitals declare the love of the Lord. And the genitals declare that love... When they come together, the love of God fully unveiled in the next verse, and the two became one flesh. The one flesh union of male and female, when God's image participates in its own intimate exchange of love, there in that sacred exchange, the mystery of the Trinity's love is revealed. Actually, there's one more step God is one in three. One essence, three persons. Eve was taken from Adam, thus the same in essence, yet two persons. Perhaps you're wondering how male and female as two can accurately reflect the three persons of the Trinity. Well, who said male and female are alone in their one flesh union? They won't be for long. The final and fullest expression of the erotic union is the glorious moment when the only incomplete cells of the male unite with the only incomplete cells of the female and a new image bearer of God is conceived. One essence, three persons. You want to talk about the sanctity of life in that microscopic moment that we cannot see, we actually see eternity's love. 
Now, I remind you not to sexualize the Trinity. We are made in the image of God, not the other way around. And you can get yourself into heresy if you're not careful here. So let me be clear. The Holy Spirit was not conceived or created. He is an eternal person of the Trinity. But our orthodoxy states that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And when Jesus speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says, it's good that I'm leaving so that you can carry on my work after I'm gone. Is that not the role of our offspring? And so when God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, that multiplication is not a byproduct of erotic love. It completes erotic love. So, putting it all together and we'll close. The title of this first session is The Revelation of Eros. And Jesus says, you have to go back to the beginning for that revelation. The problem with much of Christian teaching on sex is that it begins after Genesis 3. It allows our experiences with fallen sexuality to dictate the terms of the discussion. And in this way, our starting point rests on the assumption that sex is taboo, gross, traumatic, even wrong. We will have none of that at this conference. Erotic love is the high point of God's created order. The Trinity has forever existed in an eternal exchange of love, and the Trinity has given us, his image bearers, the glorious gift of revelation into what he has forever enjoyed. When male and female within the safe and sacred boundaries of nuptial vows are once again naked and without shame, intoxicated by the unique arousal only that naked sight affords, joining their genitals in a one-flesh union as ecstasy rises to heights nothing else in this world can offer, culminating in orgasmic euphoria, preferably at the same time, John Paul says, we'll get to that this week, culminating in orgasm that literally creates a new image bearer of God, that, brothers and sisters, is the closest you will ever get to the eternal life of the triune God. Blessed be the name of the Lord for his glorious gift of sex and gender. Now, I'm closing, but before I close, I would like to offer a brief pastoral word to a particular group of friends, particular group of friends. I understand talking about the revelation of Eros is difficult for all of us in unique ways. You see, because erotic um, holds such prominence in the life of image bearers, it then becomes the uh, focal point of our greatest shame and pain. For example, I just talked about conception as the completion of erotic love. I can't imagine how that lands on those struggling with infertility. And we're going to explore fallen eros tomorrow. But there is one group of friends I'm heavy-hearted for, in particular, uh, the single among us. Perhaps you are wondering what a conference on the erotic has to do with your life. And perhaps you fear you will never get to experience the glory that I just spoke of. I want to ask you to stick with me in this conference. There's actually a very significant portion of theology of the body devoted specifically to you. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, heck, even John Paul himself, embraced the vocation of celibacy. And so clearly that has to be a part of the story. And indeed, this is true. On Saturday, I'm going to show you that you actually happen to be the heroes of erotic love, a window into the greatest meaning of eros. And I just felt the need to state that up front, lest you think this has nothing to do with you. It does. All right, leading us tomorrow. We all know that in chapter 3 of Genesis, an enemy enters the story to wage war against God via God's image bearers. 
And the enemy is described as crafty. Well, consider this. If indeed erotic love is the greatest picture of God's eternal love, then I ask you, where would you suppose a crafty enemy is going to direct his attack? The enemy wants no one to know the love of God, and therefore the enemy seeks to destroy Eros in our world, this icon of God's love. Therefore, nowhere are the consequences of the fall experienced more than in your sexuality. We see that in scripture, we see that in history, and certainly we see that where we find ourselves in this unprecedented age of fallen sexuality. I mean, considering just all that I've said this evening, could you imagine the implications on the story of Eros if somehow a previously unthinkable reality was constructed where gender is separated from genitals? After all that I just talked about, the glory of genitals, could you imagine a reality like that? This is where we find ourselves. The reality is that if erotic love bears unique significance to the story of God's creation, then we should expect it likewise to hold unique significance in the story of fallen creation. If you want to know what is most sacred to God, find what is most desecrated by the enemy. And tomorrow we will explore erotic love's desecration. Yes, in the life of our culture, but even more, to Will's point, even more significantly in your life and in mine. Let me pray. Lord, how can we behold the glory of as it should be, as it was in the beginning? How can we behold that and not first praise you for the incredible, glorious gift of sex and gender? Not thank, not just, we just have to thank you for allowing us to share in what you have forever enjoyed. But also, Lord, how can we not confess how we ourselves have brought ruin to the erotic in our lives and in the lives of others. As we prepare to come back tomorrow, I pray that we would come back with teachable hearts, willing to humbly ask where we have fallen short in the story of Eros. And I dare pray that this conference, that chains would be broken, that marriages would be healed, that confessions will be made of hidden secrets that have never been told, I dare pray that you would use this conference to bring sexual renewal and healing to your people. Through Christ we pray, amen.